Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Series 3 of Modern Money Donuts, a podcast about modern monetary theory and ecological economics, which is now being produced by Modern Money Lab um, here in Adelaide, South Australia, on the land of the Ghana people. And we pay our respects to the Ghana people and to their elders past, present and emerging and recognize that this land was never ceded. Um, I'd like to pass you over now to my co-host, Gabrielle Bond. Hi, Stephen. It's great to be back with everybody. Um, we're Yes, as Stephen said, we're, we're broadcasting on the Modern Money Lab YouTube channel today. And um, we are going to be talking to one of our amazing students in the Economics of Sustainability postgraduate course, Nathan McMillan. And uh, our theme today is going to be about framing and language, uh, particularly around the deficit myth. So really looking forward to chatting to Nathan about that. Um, but before we introduce Nathan, um, I just wanted to mention the, uh, the intro video was made for this show by the good folks at KRTD Media and to thank them very much for doing that um, beautiful piece of work for us today um, that we use on our show. And also the music from that video was played by my partner, the concert pianist and mathematician, um, Alexander Hannis, and he has a YouTube channel as well. If you want to look him up, you could Google for his last name, which is pretty unique, H-A-N-Y-S-Z, and you can find lots of his stuff out there on YouTube, some really beautiful little clips, including that one of the Moonlight Sonata. Um, so yeah, thanks, Alex, very much for the use of that music. It's, it's great. Um, great. So I'm going to introduce Nathan now, um, just to add Nathan to our live broadcast. Hi, Nathan, can you hear us? I can. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, so Nathan, you're studying in the uh, Economics of Sustainability Master's degree at Torrens Uni. Um, I wondered if you could just start by telling us a little bit, bit about your background and what made you decide to come and study with us. Sure. So um, my background education wise was originally just an undergrad in economics and political sciences. Um, and then work-wise, since then, I've had a career in the public sector uh, in uh, the great state of New South Wales, doing uh, somewhere between finance and bureaucracy. Yep. Uh, and, yeah. For on, uh, coming on eight years now. Um, okay, excellent. Modern and money theory. Yeah, yeah, how did you get into MMT? COVID. Um, okay. <laughs> everyone needed a hobby, and um, yep. I figured, why not this? Uh, but okay. no, I think it was... I think it was a article in the Guardian or the ABC. I can't quite recall where they sort of pitched the um, the fundamental, the underlying principle of MMT, and it, it just didn't feel it, it didn't click with the way I knew the world worked. Um, mm, and that was enough to get me to search to search out a little bit more. And then you start digging, and um, frankly, I haven't stopped since. That was probably three years ago. So um, it's um, it, yeah. It's, so. So you did a conventional economics degree. Does, do mm. you feel like you've had to unlearn a lot of stuff that you were taught at uni? Well, yes. Um, thankfully, I, I don't think a lot. It was quite some time ago and I haven't really used it to, in uh, practice since. So uh, 
hopefully a, a little bit of that slipped on on slipped uh slipped on in its own time without me having mm. to physically unlearn it but i think i'll find yeah. that they'll have to learn a bit more as the um as current as unlearn a bit more as our current studies go on yeah um, yeah yeah it does cha cha challenge some pretty fundamental assumptions doesn't it like i think um now might be a good time to tell people we've had a bit of a um, discussion group going in between our trimesters of teaching mm -hmm. where we meet up on early on a Thursday morning, super early for me, way too early. It's like 7.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've been talking about framing and language in particular in relation to the deficit myth. But also we've started talking about how we might frame the ecological side of what we're teaching as well about economic growth and um, I, I would love for you to say what you um, what we were chatting about before before in the live broadcast, Nathan, about um, MMT being like the toolkit, and yeah, you know, you, the way you explained it was perfect. Right. So um, it's it, so we, we sort of uh, this conversation we've been having just with all the students. Um, we talk about framing, and there's a lot of it's about messaging as well. And I think we're all coming from very different positions. Mm. Um, as I came across um, as being interested in MMT and then I'm sort of learning more about the ecological side of stuff uh, while I'm here, which is yeah. uh, very serious, um, yeah. very important. Um, mm. There's a lot of different kind of perspectives on how we should go about talking this. And I think a lot of people conflate the two. I know it's in the, in the course title, but the way I see it is uh, MMT is the opportunity, MMT is the vehicle which could unlock yeah. the potential and then the ecological economics, such as say the donut model um, that's been gaining popularity, that's the destination. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like the term sustainable prosperity because that that encapsulates the donut in it kind of with the two, those two words together to me. Do you, mm -hmm. do you feel that that is a good overarching description of a destination that we all share? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to argue with that, isn't it? You can't. Um, you can't turn around and say no. I want unsustainable prosperity. There's no. There's no. There's no. You're not going to get any pushback on that. If that's enough to open the door to get people to listen to a little bit more, that's enough to open the door to get people to sort of start paying attention. Yeah. Um, Can we just remind people uh, briefly because they might not all know um, what the donut model is? That it's just. Uh, um, there is an inner ring to the donut, which is based on the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations, loosely anyway, um, which is about identifying all those things people need access to if they're going to have a decent quality of life. And then there's an outer ring, which um, it's, it's good to talk about this today because one of the two um, scientists who were, um, were the main people behind the nine planetary boundaries, uh, which is the outer ring of the donut that we need to stay within or move within if we're going to live sustainably in the future, was the great Earth system scientist, climate scientist, uh, Will Steffen from ANU, who, who very sadly passed on a couple of days ago and will be very badly missed. And so they're in between those two rings. That's where you want to be if you're going to be in what I think Kate Raworth uh, in her book, Donut Economics, refers to as a just and sustainable space, meeting people's needs while 
remaining within the means of of the planet yeah sorry to interrupt just uh that just a little bit of background so, somewhat important information yeah um i find um a lot of people i think start the conversation like different audiences will respond differently depending on where you start the conversation mm, I know, uh, yep for a lot of people economics and politics well, I, I wind up looking up your uh, course because i basically talked to everyone who'd be willing to listen to me about mmt and trying to convince them of that and then um when no one wanted to talk to me anymore i figured hey maybe i should make something of this so um <laughs> piece of paper behind it um but there's very different you get very different reactions for different audiences if you if you walked up and said you know we want sustainable prosperity uh you know mm. growth versus if you said this isn't you know the way off our finance system works is not how they're telling you it works yeah you know, yeah um, yeah i mean mostly on this end um mm. i saw something really interesting on twitter um somebody had posted a picture of an american one dollar bill mm. and it said don't you find it strange that people think that if i as a person make one of these uh, create it myself and start spending it I could end up in jail whereas the government needs to get it from me before they can spend it yeah isn't, yeah. That, isn't I, um, that incongruous I, I normally so, start with um I normally start by talking to people about posing a question like um you know where did my where did the dollar come from yeah. and eventually you say oh the banks here where they get it from oh well mm -hmm. the government gets it from us so where that then you know and eventually you wind yeah. up at the reserve bank someone yeah. with it someone yeah. with a keyboard or with a, with a mint yeah and then the next question is all right how come we're out of money you know, or some some <laughs> sort of uh, topical issue um topical yeah. issue just to get them thinking about how that doesn't compute yeah um yeah i think i one thing that helped it click for me as well was being told that, and I guess we'd have to fact check, check this, but I'm pretty sure that it's true that if you, in the US at least, if you paid your taxes in paper money mm. and you paid it at the post office, rather than passing it on to the government, it would simply be shredded. Mm. Yeah. Is that an urban myth, Stephen, or is that actually true? <laughs> Sorry, I can't mute. Um, it's 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 sort of true i mean they look at uh, uh when uh, notes go into the banking system um those that are um tattered do get shredded yes but it's not the notes that are important of mm. course they're just a token they represent uh, uh warren mosler would say a tax anticipation note as far mm. as the as far as the federal government is concerned they are technically an iou of the federal government just the way a government bond is it's just if you are holding physical currency they don't pay interest on on physical currency but absolutely and we were i was in uh, at the first mmt conference in kansas city with phil Lorm in 2017 and we we got a taxi actually to go to the kansas city fed because one of the branches of the federal reserve is in kansas city um where they gave us for nothing a bag of torn up old notes and we explained to the taxi driver a very intelligent 
woman. I can't remember what qualifications she had, but she she did have some educational qualifications. She had, this is going off the point slightly, but she had never earned in her life the Australian minimum wage. Mm. But uh, anyway, we explained what we were going to get at the Kansas City Fed, and she said, oh, that's terrible. Imagine all the people you could help you could help with that money if they didn't tear it to pieces. Mm. It just showed me here's a really intelligent woman and she has no understanding at all yeah. of my, the monetary um, system. That's typical, I think. My, uh, I'm the first person, I'd be happy to be the first person to stand up and say there are plenty of people smarter than me. But from where I sit at the moment, a whole bunch of people look very foolish. Um, and the, look, and all of this, I think, again, with the MMT stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to people until you bring it home as to how it affects their lives. So, you know, if, if I say if, cause I'm still a student, uh, yeah. if MMT is right. And, you know, um, perhaps raising interest rates isn't the best way to control inflation and may in fact be contributing to inflation. Great. Mm -hmm. That's an issue. But also if you mm -hmm. say that's why, you know, if your neighbor just lost their house because mm -hmm. interest rates went up and they couldn't afford it, or if that business closed and everyone's out of a job because interest rates went up and they can't afford it, now yeah. people are interested. Because yeah, they're, they're absolutely. I, I wouldn't say most people are foolish. I think people really shouldn't have to pay close attention to how the monetary system works. Hmm. But it is, um, I'm afraid my profession has played quite a big role in misleading uh, people. Hmm. And, and that goes back to framing because uh, it is so easy when people are not paying close attention to to fall um, victim to all the heuristics and biases that we know that frame our thinking. So substitution bias, if we're asked a question about public finance, we naturally think in terms of our own finances. That's the Absolutely. misleading metaphor. And, and then unless somebody explains um, uh, how things actually work to us in an engaging enough way, and we can actually be bothered to listen, um, then that's the way, particularly when it's being reinforced all the time in, in, in the media, in the Australian Financial Review, again, only yesterday, uh, not that I want to refer to that <laughs> particularly. Um, uh, uh, it, it, is, it is difficult. Um, uh, the framing issue is a difficult one. We've made some progress over the last 10 years, but much of that progress has been I think down to one person. It's been down to Stephanie. She's been so effective um, yes. in getting the message over. Yes, it's, uh, we can. We can still use the household analogy. You just need to add, uh, you know, think of the budget like a household, except you've got the only printing press in town and a private army to make sure everyone needs to pay some taxes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was. I was reflecting uh, last night. I watched some of the uh, videos that they shared from the Robo Debt Royal Commission. Mm. Um, which, if you're in the US, um, I'll just very quickly sort of um, outline as best I can what happened there. The Australian government decided to use a now discredited and actually illegal method of calculating people's income that were on welfare that did bits and pieces of work in between as you do and uh, created these uh, automatic debts on thousands of people that they then got 
chased by debt collectors and it was a, a complete, um, you know, it ruined people's lives. It actually cost people's lives, this having these fake debts um, uh, against you when you, um, when you were receiving Commonwealth income. And all of that's coming out now about the legal issues around it. Um, but what really shocked me quite a lot yesterday was watching the, uh, the person explain the media strategy around how they deliberately made these, um, they basically um, flooded the media, the mainstream media with stories about welfare cheats and isn't it great that the government crackdown is bringing all this money back and... You might need to say a little bit more if there's non-Australians listening, Gabby, for them to understand what the robot debt thinks. Didn't, we, did, didn't, didn't we then wind up making that guy prime minister? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what, what what is robo debt, or what was robo debt, Gabby? So robo debt was um, a means for the. Um, for the Department of Human Services, which administers the welfare payments, to calculate uh, the money that, it, that hypothetically people on welfare received that they weren't entitled to, and it did it by uh, a by averaging their income that they reported and assuming that they earned um, a certain amount spread across the whole year rather than kind of adding up fortnight by fortnight and so people yeah. basically it was misleading and it, it made people out to owe money to to the federal yeah. government which they didn't and uh, and then then there was no there didn't seem to be any way that that uh, it could be put right and there's there's some parallels between that approach and the um sort of the mainstream economics commentary as well isn't there where it's it's what you're fed is a, a bunch of numbers at the end of an equation. And what, what's missing from that is the, the context. You're, you're just showing a correlation and told it's causation. Um, in this case, obviously, there's a bit of a different um, story to it. There's more to it, but. Yeah, absolutely. Even on day to day. But for people out there listening to know that the money that was recouped from these people, it didn't need to be, you know, it's not. It's not a zero sum game that that money coming back from those people, mm. if it didn't come back, then we couldn't afford this other thing over here. That kind of adds that that extra layer of cruelty onto the whole process, which is already incredibly damaging and uh, tragic for the people involved. Now, I'm going to challenge you on this, Gabby, and I'm going to say that if you want to talk about MMT, you don't talk about any of that um, because I think there is again depending on what audience you're talking to and i think the progressive side of politics um, mm -hmm. and people who are more aggressively inclined are more already more on board with this sort of stuff um but if yeah. you're trying to reach the middle middle the larger portion of the population as soon as you start talking about welfare debts and you start talking about um so the jobs guarantee is a good example if we start mm -hmm. talking about the jobs guarantee as a welfare program or something yeah. that is targeted to people who as a handout mm -hmm. now you're now you're um you know, now you're a welfare system. So all the all the negative connotations that come with that, dull bludger, um, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. Why should I give up my my taxes to yeah. pay for yours? Yeah. And yeah. I know strictly speaking under MMT, that's not true, but the effect mm -hmm. is the same on the population. So if, if you're yeah. saying 
you're saying, you know, I, I rather I prefer to phrase it in such a way as a opportunity and B it's about giving people who want to work an opportunity. Um, I mm -hmm. heard a, mm -hmm. and you can package that up in something like say a civil service. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's opportunity on both sides really, isn't it? Work yeah, needs but, doing, people need work. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's not about giving people who are otherwise unproductive as something to do. It's about giving people who want something to do the means to do it. So getting people into the workforce. Um, yeah. But there's a great example. Um, oh, dear, his name escapes me. Who's the um, lead economist in the Australia Institute? Richard Dennis. Yes, he, he did a great example between uh, two um, public sector institutions we have here in Australia, one being Centrelink, which handles mm. the bulk of um, welfare payments for mm. Uh, civil society and the other being uh, veterans affairs which is yeah. more or less the same function but specifically for uh veterans um yeah. exactly the same function yep. completely different you know approaches if you ask people about them completely different approaches generally speaking if you're going into centrelink there's a lot of shame attached to that yeah um if you're going into veterans affairs there's a lot of honor attached to that rightly yeah. so but that's yeah. a great example of how if you start talking about the the jobs guarantee which is you know the inflation stabilizing mechanism as a means of getting people you know for moral reasons mm. uh on sorry the wrong moral reasons or like the moral reasons that you're feeling emotive to yeah yep. in the basket of um welfare then i think automatically you've just put up a huge wall that you have to now break down to get more people on board yeah if we and thank this, you Thank you service. for raising that. Thank you for yeah. raising that because um, that's partly why I was really excited to talk to you because, um, uh, you know, we, t we talk about these things uh, amongst our students as well and you always have such good perspectives to add and it's Thank reminded you. me of, um, uh, yeah. hopefully people aren't reading that backwards, yeah. but um, Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff. This yeah. is the earlier version, but there's another, um, a later version that's come out more recently mm. as well um, and that yeah the idea of demonizing welfare recipients versus um uh, you know lauding the people who are receiving veterans affair benefits from from being a veteran is a really good case in point i think yeah if you, if you um I, I think there is a genuine opportunity for this um to be implemented through sort of a, a civic service style thing. So in Australia, we you know, say you're um, dress it up, well, not dress it up, but just make people perfectly aware, put it into the space of your volunteer fire services, put it into the space of your volunteer, um, you know, um, your volunteer emergency services. Um, if you think about it as an institution like that, I think that makes a lot more sense and is a lot less, um, it's a lot harder to tear down than if you did, you know, these people don't have a job, let's give them a job because that falls into the welfare bucket and that's a much, you know, pick your fights. Yeah, that's right. And so, so a couple of good examples from that would be the Commonwealth Employment Services that we used to have back in the 70s? Right up to the 90s, Okay. actually. Uh, yes, and, and uh, but uh, I think it's Nathan's discussion of this is, is uh, um, uh, absolutely correct. I think it's important to bear in mind that um, what we're trying to reframe has been framed the way it is at the moment deliberately 
over a period of 40 years. Nathan is not old enough to remember this, but I can remember the 1970s in, I was in the UK, but it was, it was similar, if not more the case in Australia, mm -hmm. that um, if you were on unemployment benefit in those days, it was not framed the way it is now. It's not always been the way it is now. We are at the tail end of a 40-year campaign to demonise welfare payments in general. It's not how they started off in the 50s and the mm. 60s and even the 1970s. Um, but uh, uh, we can't go back to where we were then. So as Lakoff would say, we need to reframe um, uh, things. And, and the way Nathan was talking about um, framing a job guarantee, I think that's that's a good case in point. Having a positive um, frame uh, for uh, a program and also the participants of a program. Mm. The self-respect and respect of the community as a whole, people are choosing to go into that program and provide valuable services to the rest of the community. My understanding is that our um, our federal government at the moment is looking at um, considering a service to sort of fill the role somewhere between your SES at the moment, sorry, uh, disaster management. Disaster relief is sorry what I'm getting at. So at the moment, every time we have a disaster, we call in the army, and that's very inexpensive, very expensive, very inefficient, and obviously we all know the disasters are going to happen more frequently and get more severe. Um, but that sort of space where there's a, a new service being generated, which is going to be you know, the, you know that that just screams job uh, jobs guarantee opportunity to me. That that screams like that's the sort of space yeah. where jobs guarantee should be you know, piloted in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. And Australia has a really proud culture of volunteering. Mm. And if we can tap into that, I think lots of people, you know, pretty much everybody would say, oh, yes, I do at least some volunteer work and I'd like to mm. do more. You know, it's part of um, what binds us together in, especially like you said, in, in times of disaster. And it's, it's friends and neighbours <laughs> and communities that, that's a that's a difficult space, of course, because there are people that do voluntary work who would see it differently if they were paid for it. Yes, but you know, uh, there's there's paid charity positions. You know, mm. there's, yeah. it's easy to <laughs> ask someone, "Do you think there's something that needs doing in your community?" And if they say no, then maybe we've gone too far. But you know, <laughs> the chances are they're going to say yes, and then you can work on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're not short of ideas, and Gabby's. Uh, a campaign group produced a really good report on a federal job guarantee in Australia only last year. Didn't yeah, that's right. Well, it was actually, yeah, that's right. Last year in um, uh, around about August in time for the Jobs Summit the, that the new um, Labor Party, newly elected Labor Party held, um, which was going to be a full employment summit, might I say. The original framing of that um, summit was as full employment and we thought oh excellent now's a good time to start talking about a job guarantee and then it kind of gradually drifted into the more sort of wishy-washy skills and employment and skills so I think we have um, yeah we still have some work to do with um, with framing that in a way that appeals across the board and I think your ideas are fantastic Nathan and um, yeah, how, I, just before we finish up, 
I was hoping we'd we'd might get to framing about economic growth as well, but I think we've probably run out of time today, so for another day. But um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the conversations that you've been having, Nathan, about um, framing the deficit myth and framing a job guarantee, and what what or how you've gone about it, and what you think is a is a is the best option so for those. Yeah, so look, I'm conscious we haven't got too much more time, so I'll be brief. No, but um, right. I think when we're sort of getting these uh, students together and having these conversations, it, it becomes mm -hmm. very apparent that everyone is fully aware of all of the budgetary um, sort of analogies for how we're going to run out of money, mm -hmm. um, how the finances are in limited capacity, you know, the household budget, the, the, the public debt, the fiscal deficit, whatever, the, the black the budget, hole. Black hole, yeah. Yeah, all those ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the the ecology stuff is the part we're trying to get people to pay attention to, and yet that's always treated as if it's an un, and in mainstream economics is kind of treated as if it's a unlimited resource, mm. or um, because we don't have stuff like uh, it doesn't pop up in budgets. You have the budget, and then you have a separate report for you know ecology and yeah. environmental impacts. Yeah, or um, it's or it's kind of sort of clumsily referred to as something like ecosystem services yeah. and, and dollar values are putting onto things but it, yeah it, it's it's the barrier it's the thing that's getting in the way of the budget so it's mm. you know if, if you're a policymaker and you're not particularly environmentally inclined you need to mm. get around that and it's separate it's not part of the stuff that you're sort of i'm going to say kpis it's a very poor term mm. yeah um but i think there's a lot of capacity to use to pick up all the, the budgetary sort of lingo that everyone's so familiar with mm. and apply that to an, an ecology budget. So for mm. instance, you know, uh, we've been drawing down our uh, ecological account or our environmental account, and now we're overdrawn and that's that's yeah. the impact you're having. And that's where we're yeah. seeing we need to put back into that or we need to stop taking out of that. Yeah. But you can just pick up everything that we've been saying with the budget, the financial budget, and apply it to ecology and i think that's a separate yeah. conversation from how you go mm -hmm. about tackling the mmt side of things because now we're talking about the destination not the means yeah um, but then you know you have to figure out how to break down that, that welfare um sorry the the household analogy as well mm -hmm. mainstream news on, on the finance side of things but so essentially what um going back to what you said before um it's like we we need to flip the script mm. so the ecological side is limited and in danger of um being used up to the extent mm. that it creates massive problems for us whereas the financial side has capacity to get us to the destinations that we need yeah absolutely yeah. um so that yeah that, that financial side i think we need to have a conversation around inflation i think now is the time to do it with with inflation mm. going so crazy because again mm. it, it's affecting everyone yeah and a lot of people not in a small way and you stand up yeah. there is a better way to do this I'm not saying it's easy, and um, yeah. but you stand up and say there's a better way to do this. I mm. think now it's got to be the time. Yeah, I think historically that'd be true to true as well. Um, mm. Times like one, this would change. One thing I've heard Stephen say when we've met with union folks and and people who um, you know are basically sort of you might expect them to be on board with a job guarantee as an idea, mm. but um, just keep raising what could go wrong. Um, I heard you say it really, really well, Stephen. You said, well, you know, we run a, a government school system. We run a government health system. No, they're not perfect. And yes, they need improvement. 
but for most people, most of the time, they're a fantastic resource. And why couldn't we run a government employment system? We run those Absolutely. And of course, in the US, they use the same sense of argument about a health system, about Medicare for all. Mm. It would be yeah. ignoring Brain the rest of the world. Yeah. Maybe as an expense rather than an investment as well. And a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, whereas uh, uh, in almost every other high-income country in the world, it's not a bit, it's not easy to run and there are inefficiencies in health systems, of course, but everybody else, if we're thinking about budgetary impacts for that matter, everybody else around the world has a much more efficient health system okay. than the US does, spends about half what US does out of its GDP on healthcare and, and has a, a greater life expectancy. But, um, so um, there's, there are a lot of myths, which um, different sets of myths, um, uh, 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 although there are obviously similarities, but they're not exactly the same set in every mm. country around the world. And we need to take them on. And part of us doing that is actually bringing together people like Nathan and Susan, who we're going to talk to next week, uh, and Jeff, who we talked to last week from different countries and with uh, although many things in common, different backgrounds too, so we can learn from each other and encourage each other to go out and, and challenge those myths. Mm. It's not easy though, but uh, um, it is something right. where the more and more people that we have who are in a position uh, whether it's in the Labour Party or the Democrats in the US or in financial institutions, media organisations, academia, wherever they are, um, challenging uh, these myths and, and reframing the conversation, the yeah. better. But it, it took the conservative side um, 30 years after the Second World War to undo many of the advances, many of the gains which, which were won after 1945 and i think we are um, we don't really have 20 years to achieve these things that's the downside but i think we may be 10 years into a into a pushback i bet if you walked into that room and asked everyone if they wanted a whole bunch more apprentices uh, given the construct the way the construction industry is going off in australia at the moment it would have been a bit of a different conversation but yeah right. yeah well, uh, we need to, uh, everybody's got a, a slightly different approach. Uh, but if we're all pushing in broadly the same direction, um, mm. bearing in mind we've, we've all got different audiences too. If you're talking to a bunch of conservatives about a job guarantee, there is there is a way to make it appear attractive to them, people who, who complain about wrongly, uh, absurdly, about dull budgets. Well, if you give people the opportunity of uh, contributing and having a worthwhile job then if it's if we're talking to greenies like Gabby uh, and give people the opportunity to work in a way which supports the community and, and defends and restores the environment if you're talking to union leaders well you know if people have a, an alternative to insecure very low paid jobs they're going to have more bargaining power and you ought to find it easier to recruit them for your unions actually. Mm. Um, for every audience, there's a, there is a different uh, message. Those messages don't contradict each other. They are about framing, um, and I, I, I see no reason why we can't be successful 
with uh, a, a movement towards a federal job guarantee because actually there's a strong positive frame for almost everybody mm. we talked about. It's just a good idea. Mm. That's true. And, and I think... Sorry, again, you go. That's all right. No, I was just going to mention, like, um, the idea of a well-being budget and a well-being economy, and I think we are seeing a bit of a swing back towards, um, you know, away from greed is good and more towards, hey, let's look after people, which obviously appeals to my values. Yeah. <laughs> it may not appeal to everybody, and I, I get that, yeah. and I'm trying to teach myself more about... Um, trying to put myself in other people's shoes and see it from other points of view not that it is always easy but i've found our our discussions um as a group of of students i'm not a student but i'm tagging along has been incredibly um inspiring and um given me some like real kind of meaty problems to to mull over and and sort out in my own head that's probably a reasonably good way. We'll give Nathan the last word in a minute, but that's a reasonably good way to wind up after we've yeah. given Nathan the last yeah. word. Yeah. I'll end on a good note. I'll say that um, I do try and hold a little uh, community talks on this for everyone who's willing to listen. And um, it is reassuring that once people see it, they don't unsee it. Yeah, there's a light bulb moment, and then once they see it, it's that's you can change people's perspectives on this, and it does stick. So. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's terrific. That's really Thank good. you very much, Nathan. If I could say, before Gabby says uh, goodbye, if I could just uh, say to everybody, if you have never heard of Professor Will Stephan, then Google Will Stephan and uh, have a look at one of his talks on the Anthropocene or on planetary boundaries. Um, he is... Uh, although he wasn't uh, an Australian, but he for a long time was at ANU in Australia and mm -hmm. uh, one, of, one of the most important scientists of our time um, will be very sadly missed yes. and many of us owe him an enormous debt of gratitude for his work. Yeah, thank you. Good note to end on. Thanks, Stephen. All right, well, thanks very much, Nathan, for being with us um, today. It's really super interesting to hear your perspectives. And we'll see folks again next week when we talk to the inimitable Susan Borden, who has been one of the leading lights in our, in our conversations about framing as well. Susan mm. is, um, I, I just think she's really cool and interesting. And, and, and has a cool about. link to the very famous economist Carl Polanyi. We yes. can ask her about that next week. Yeah. Yeah, she's got some interesting takes on the role of the metaphor as well, if you get the chance. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, excellent. Great. All right. Well, uh, we will see you next week. Same time, same channel. Bye, Bye everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs>